Uh, welcome to Shalom. If this is your first time here, we're thrilled to have you and uh, hope that you come back again uh, and trust that today will be a good day as we dive into the Word. Um, we've been in Hebrews, as you know, and um, previous to last week, we were walking through warning, a warning passage that we find in Hebrews where the author had paused his defense or his discussion about who Jesus is, specifically who he is as a great high priest, and he made a pause in order to issue a warning, and we spent two weeks talking about that warning, the, the, the need for these Jewish believers to continue growing their, in their faith. They'd actually maybe backed off or back, backslidden or veered from what they knew the truth was, and he was calling them back. He said, you need to start eating solid foods not continuing to drink milk. Well, last week, you'll remember, we emerged from this warning passage, and, uh, and we started to see our theme begin to play out again, because the warnings, it's hard to see it, but we started to see it a, bit, a little bit last week, our, our theme of the glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. And as we began last week, you'll remember, we started in verse 9, and it started this way in verse 9. It says that we speak in this way, meaning that, that warning, aspect of it. He said, yet in your case, and what did he call them? Do you remember? That was our theme through last week. He called them the beloved. Called them the beloved. That's, that's easier to swallow. It's easier to see our hope and comfort when we see those things. And then we feel sure of better things, and we're going to start to see what some of those better things are as we walk through our passage today. I hope, if you're like me, that, that you took the challenge that we had last week to heart. Um, and what it, you know, we were challenged, Darren asked us to contemplate this week, what does it mean to be beloved, to be the beloved? And certainly for those of us who are from the States, we celebrated Thanksgiving this week, ate lots of food, more than we probably should have. Um, but it's an opportunity to give thanks for how God has blessed us. Well, one of those ways is that we are the beloved. It's an amazing truth. Um, and the fact that we are considered beloved is a great reason to give thanks. Um, it was a great challenge last week to do that. I want to start by reading verses 11 and 12, and we covered these last week, but it gives us a jumping off point for our passage today, which is verses 13 through 20. So verses 11 and 12 say this in Hebrews chapter 6, and we desire each of you, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end. You can circle that full assurance of hope until the end. That's that promise. We're going to talk about the promise today. Um, and then in verse 12, it says, so that, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Note in verse 11, the desire for the author is to have the readers have this full assurance of hope. He talks about this in verse 11. I want you to have this full assurance of hope. And then secondly, in verse 12, where we as the beloved, they were challenged to what? To be imitators. If you remember, we ended our service last week with the challenge of being imitators. As a matter of fact, one of the, the questions Darren asked of the beloved imitators was we actually, wasn't even a question, it was a statement, we have actually the capacity to imitate, to be imitators. Um, I wrestled with that a little bit this week. 
Not that I don't have the capacity to be imitator. Matter of fact, it, it took me to a, a thankful place because I, I, look around, I look around this room and I see people that I want to emulate or imitate because they are people who are, have obtained the promise through faith and patience as we read. Um, I think about Hebrews chapter 11. We'll talk about that a little bit today. I thought, think about my, my father. I think about others in my life who have influenced me who are worth imitating. Um, that's something we should look for. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to do there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great, great cloud of witnesses. I flipped the challenge a little bit for me this week because it take me to not only am I imitating or who is it that's worth imitating, but what am I leaving that's worth imitating as well? So it's a challenge that goes both ways. And I actually, that was more of a challenge for me as I thought about my own children, my grandchildren now, and what is the impact of my life? Am I worth imitating? Am I like the Apostle Paul who says, follow me and do what I do? Follow me as I follow Christ. Am I able and willing to do that? So big, big challenge for us. What kind of example am I leaving? Well, it takes us to today, um, and those people that we want to imitate are those who, as the Bible says in verse 12 of our passage, of the previous passage, who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Well, who are we talking about? Well, Darren mentioned last week, and we're going to focus on Abraham this week, or at least a part of Abraham, um, as we talk about someone worth imitating. So we're going to read our passage today, um, verses 13 through 20 of chapter 6. So let me read this for us, and then we'll dive in and, and take a little bit closer look at it. So it starts with this, verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that in, enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You've heard that name Melchizedek before? Uh, we talked about it in chapter 5. Darren referred to it last week in, um, in his thing, you're probably itching. I need to know more about Melchizedek. Well, you won't learn it today. We're not going to talk about Melchizedek today. But I do promise next week we will talk about Melchizedek. And so make sure that you come back for next week. I just wanted to mention that. Um, before we walk through our passage today, I want to take a, a quick look at just verse 18, because that's where our, our theme or our title for our today's message comes out of. 
you'll notice that this verse begins with the word so that. Same, same result statement that is found in chapter 12 of last week's passage. Anytime you see that so that words, um, you need to take note. It's pointing to something. It's talking about a purpose or a result of something, and so you need to pay attention when it says so that. So verse 18 says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is it in this case where the author wants to encourage the readers? He wanted them to have strong encouragement. That's a a powerful word that's there. And so our title today comes from this, and so does our application. We're going to take both of these. It's the same thing. Be strongly encouraged. That's both our, the title of our passage and the application. Number one is be strongly encouraged by, and we'll identify three things in this passage that the readers should be strongly encouraged by and that we should be strongly encouraged by. And then secondly is our application, and that's to be strongly encouraged too. And it gives us an action step or an application coming out of verse 18. And that's to hold fast, as you can read there. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we close uh, in just a few minutes. So let's start with what the readers or these Jewish believers should be encouraged by based on what the author is saying here. And number one, we should be encouraged, strongly encouraged by the promise. Verse 14, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says what? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's, that's the promise. And then comes our example uh, that's worth it, imitating in verse 15. He says this, and thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. So our example, that person who's worth imitating is Abraham that we're talking about here. Um, And so we remember, we look back at verse 12, we should be imitating those who by faith and patience obtain the promise. That is Abraham in this place. What do we know about Abraham? He's a man of what? Faith. He's a man of faith. Uh, All we have to do is read chapter 11 about the heroes of faith, and you see uh, Abraham is highlighted there. Verse 8, he's he obeyed, and so by faith he obeyed. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. By faith, when tested, he offered up his son Isaac. Well, what do we know about this idea of faith? Uh, well, Hebrews uh, 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him or who seek them. Abraham was a man of faith worth imitating. He patiently waited and by faith received the promise. It came true. And we know that this this blessing to be to multiply, he was going to bless the nations through through Abraham. It was ultimately that hope of eternity with God in heaven. That, that blessed assurance that we sang about a couple weeks ago, that assurance of hope that's found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, that's our assurance of hope that's referred to in verse 11 uh, that we read previously and referenced again here in our passage. The faith of Abraham, 
as we know, was tested several times throughout his life. God tested his faith when he offered Isaac up to as a sacrifice. He stepped forward in faith, and then God provided for that sacrifice in the form of a ram, and the promise was fulfilled. The promise, as our passage says in verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Abraham's faith was tested in this. Um, We also know, this is, by the way, great encouragement for me. When I look at our heroes of the faith like Abraham, the father of the Israel nation, and I realize that his faith wavered sometimes. Did it not? When God said, you are going to have a child in your old age, his faith wavered, didn't it? So even for me, when, when I'm, I'm reading a passage like this and I think, oh, he's the person I'm supposed to imitate, it's actually an encouragement for, for me that he's not perfect because I put myself in that place and like, oh, there's actually a chance for me. Um, Abraham's faith was tested, and even though he did take matters into his own hands, and that should give us some encouragement, he believed. And because he believed, because he had faith, it was counted to him as what? Righteous. The Apostle Paul refers to Abraham in Romans chapter 4 regarding his faith, probably two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Um, Verse 20 says, no unbelief, no lack of faith made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God had power to do what he had promised. Sorry, that probably wasn't exact. You can tell I memorized it in a different (laughs) translation some time ago. Um, Very powerful, very powerful passage. God's word is worth listening to. The promise is real because it's from God. Abraham is worth imitating because by faith and patience, he received the promise. And if I'm a a reader at that time, and even back in Abraham's time, I'm like, oh, that's great for him. And you you can veer and say, well, that's great for the Israelite nation as well. But what about me? I'm not a Jew, nor are you. Well, obviously, we know that ultimately it does include us. So it's not just Abraham. So verse 17, we keep reading. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So it's not just Abraham that is receiving the promise. He received the promise, but it was for others, his offspring. Who are the heirs? Well, certainly um, the authors reminding this audience, these Jewish believers who were veering somewhat from their faith, he's reminding them of of what the truth is um, and that they are considered sons. They're considered heirs of the promise. What an amazing truth. And he's saying, "Don't, don't lose sight of that. And as we read, they were in danger of forgetting that truth, but... One of the things that we have that people in that time didn't have is we have all the Scripture. And as we read all of Scripture, um, we quickly realize that that promise that was made to Abraham went a lot further than just Abraham and his descendants. It went to his heirs. 
And who were those? Let me read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where we read of the promise. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, this was Abraham before he became Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's all good. Abraham is family. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse, and then you all, the families of the earth, shall be blessed. All of us. Even before Christ came, he's pointing to Christ the Savior, because all the nations is going to include everyone on the earth. Genesis eleven eighteen uses similar language. It says, And in your offspring, talking to Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's ultimately, as we know, talking about we are these heirs as well. We are beneficiaries of the promise that he's made. In our passage today in verse 18, we read that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Who are the heirs? It's those who have fled for refuge. It's not specific to the Jewish nation. It's not specific to the sons and daughters of Abraham only. Those who have fled for refuge. The Apostle Paul recognizes this truth when he writes to the Galatian church in chapter 3. He says this about the heirs of the promise. Listen, Colossians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Who is he talking about? talking about you. If you fled to him for refuge, meaning if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he says you are an heir. You are an heir. The author of Hebrews wanted his readers to be strongly encouraged by the promise, the hope of salvation available to all who have, as the scriptures say, fled for refuge. There is strong encouragement in knowing that we are heirs of the promise. Second thing, so first is the promise. The second thing the author wanted his readers, these Jewish believers, to be encouraged or strongly encouraged by was the oath. So first was the promise, second was the oath. We read about it in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He swore by it. Now, we don't swear. We tell our kids not to swear, uh, oftentimes. Um, But when he made a promise to Abraham, it says in verse 13, when he had no one greater to whom to swear by, he swore by himself. He uses similar language in Genesis 22, 16, uh, when he's talking to Abraham after he had provided the ram as a sacrifice, he says this, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. Same language in Isaiah 45, verse 23, he says, By myself 
I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What's that word? To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Verse 16, if you read down, I don't think it'll be on the screen. It goes on to explain this idea of God swearing. What does it mean for God to swear to himself? Said verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. It would mean when it, when it says people swear by something greater than themselves. I think of courtrooms. You don't hear it so much anymore, what they used to do. Do you put your right hand on the Bible? Do you solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, not the truth? So help you God. Now, I, don't, I think now it's raise your right hand and, and promise not to lie, basically. So we're not using this anymore. It, I'm speaking more from the U.S. perspective. Obviously, politics, we see lots of swearing in politics. But I was reading about the swearing in of presidents of the United States, and all but three have used Scripture. So it's not a requirement for them to swear on the Bible. Some reason I thought it was. So three haven't. Um, but they swear on the Bible. They, they, they take their oath. They put their hands on the Bible. Usually it's a family Bible that they bring or has special meaning to it. And they swear on it because it's something, at least maybe they don't realize that, it's something greater than themselves. I'm swearing on it. Too often, though, what do they do? They take that family Bible and then they do this with it. And it comes out again, by the way, when it's politically convenient. And then they use it again. Sorry, I'm getting on a soapbox. We see it in politics. Let's talk about other example that maybe we see it. It may be even a more important example. So when I was in elementary school, fifth grade, Fridays were pizza day for people that didn't pack lunches. And there was lots of swearing that took place on that day. Not cursing, but swearing. And here's, you know, the, the, it went something like this. I was at lunch, I packed my lunch or, because it was too expensive. But you, everybody wanted the pizza. And it's not that it was that great, but you wanted pizza. So the conversations that morning usually went something like this. Hey, I've got a bologna sandwich, Tom. You want to trade your pizza for my bologna sandwich? He said, hmm, bologna sounds pretty good. So what do I swear to him? What do I say to him? Do you swear? Oh, I swear. Then what happens? Okay, do you swear on your what? You name it. Something greater, right? Do you swear on your mother's grave? I've heard that if you ever watched the movie Stand By Me. Don't. Watch it with your kids. It's full of bad language. But they swear, that was one of their swear. Do you swear on your mother's grave? So it goes to another level. Well, that final confirmation, that oath, you swear, yeah, I swear. Yeah, I, I will give it. The final confirmation is what? Do you? Pinky swear. Come on, in elementary school, do you know what a pinky swear is? It was. It was, hey, Tom, do you pinky swear to trade your pizza for my bologna? Once, 
we pinky swore, that was confirmed. It was going to happen. Um, that's a really strange analogy to talk about God. <laughs> but that gives you the idea you're swearing about something greater. Um, there's a big difference between my pinky swear and God's statement that he swears by himself. Because if I say I swear by myself, or I swear, Tom, I, I will give it to you, I may be an honest person. I may be truthful. But the reality is I have the capacity to not be. I have the capacity to lie. So while I might say I swear to tell the whole truth, not the, but the truth, but help me, God, the reality is I have the capacity to not. And that means my character, my truthfulness can be called into question. Well, what about God? I have the capacity to lie. What about God? Verse 18 says this, um, we've already read it, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. First note that word unchangeable, very important to our passage today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That We'll read about that at the end of Hebrews. It's important because it speaks directly to the glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. What's unchangeable? Verse 17, we read the unchangeable character of his purpose. And then in verse 18, there are two unchangeable things. We talked about them, the promise and the oath. Those are those two unchangeable things. Why are they unchangeable? It's impossible for God to lie. It's, I have the capacity to. So it's not unchangeable for me. They may change with me, but for God, it's impossible. That should give us great encouragement that this promise is unchangeable. The oath that, that God gives is unchangeable. The fact that it's impossible for God to actually lie should strongly encourage us. First Samuel 15, 29 says this, and also the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. As he has said, will he not do it? Or as he has spoken, will he not fulfill it? He doesn't lie. He can't lie. Why is that important? Because it's unchangeable. It's, it means the promise is for real. You may doubt it. You may veer from it and say, well, I don't really believe it. That doesn't, mean it, that doesn't make it wrong. It makes you wrong if you veer that way. Because God doesn't lie. And we can hold on to that. We can find great, we can find strong encouragement in the truth of that. So we can be strongly encouraged by the promise. What's the promise? The hope of salvation. Our eternal hope. We can be strongly encouraged by the oath. When God says it, we can bank on it. Meaning, we know it's going to happen because he doesn't lie. The scriptures say he doesn't lie. It'd be completely out of his character. 
And lastly, we can be strongly encouraged by the anchor. We can be strongly encouraged by the anchor. Verses 19 and 20 of our passage say this, We have this as a sure and fed steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor for us, that sure and steadfast anchor is the hope, that hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. What is that? Well, we get a glimpse. If you read the first part of 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul describes who that hope is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our what? Our hope. Speaking of Jesus, he's the hope. The sure and steadfast anchor where we find that hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. We don't hope in other things. This world pulls us and wants us, hey, hope in something else. Hey, you need to, you need to work harder, by the way. You need to perform because in order to perform, that's how you get. That's not how the Bible functions. Jesus Christ is our hope. What an amazing, amazing truth. Later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says this, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, referencing the holy of holies, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The high priest, the Levitical priest, went into the Holy of Holies as a representative for the people. What did he do? He offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. It was established by God. They, the people, never went in. They weren't allowed. The high priest represented them. What happens if they went into the Holy of Holies? They would surely die. This says Christ is our Forerunner. We should find great encouragement in Christ, our forerunner. He's not, oh, he represents us. He goes before the Father on our behalf. But this says he's a forerunner. The idea behind being a forerunner is that you're going before something with the thought that something is coming behind. That's what a forerunner is. Well, what's coming behind? It's you. It's me. And he desires, he he did that. He, he was the forerunner. Christ opens the, the door and desires for us to follow him. That alone sets the great high priest afar from the Levitical high priest. That's been the argument that the, the author has been making. Jesus is our great high priest. He's much better than Moses. He's much better than Aaron. He's much better than the high priest, the Levitical priesthood. I don't know about you, but it takes me back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Because of the promise, because of the oath, because we have Christ as the anchor, what does it say in 4.16? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can only do that because of Christ, our forerunner. If he wasn't the forerunner, we couldn't confidently come before the throne of grace. 
And he says, I'm going before because I want you to come behind. What an incredible encouragement for us. So we close, we'll go back to our theme verse 18 and, and find our application as well. And the readers and us alike are, are strongly encouraged to what? Be strongly encouraged to hold fast. Hold fast to the hope set before us. And we've read this encouragement before from the author. Verse 14 of chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 6 of chapter 3, hold fast our confidence. Verse 14, hold on to our original confidence. Hold firm to that. Our passage we just read, hold fast our confession in verse 14 of chapter 4. Our passage today, our challenge today to hold fast our confession. We'll get to Hebrews chapter 10 that tells us to let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The worship team is going to come and, and close us in just a minute. But as followers of, of Jesus Christ, we should be strongly encouraged today by what? By the promise. The promise wasn't just for Abraham and his descendants, it was for his heirs. And as the Apostle Paul says, we are heirs. We should be strongly encouraged by the oath that guaranteed the promise. Why? Because it was said by God, and God cannot lie. That should give us strong encouragement. And we should be strongly encouraged by the anchor, the hope, that is the forerunner, Jesus Christ. Out of our greater understanding of that incredible, incredible truth, be strongly encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before us today. Um, we're going to close our service in just a minute. We're going to close with that same song that we closed with last week, A Living Hope. Um, it's a powerful song and resonate as you think about the idea of a living hope, our anchor, our steadfast anchor, which is Jesus Christ, our hope. Um, think about Jesus. Think about the promise. Think about the oath that was given that guaranteed the promise, and think about the anchor. Let me close with a, a quote by John Piper regarding this idea of holding fast. He says this, what Christ brought us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our wills as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills because we want to hold fast. What he bought was not the canceling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. As we close, be strongly encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before you. That is the person and work of Jesus Christ, our living God.